Today is December 3rd, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, ETSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Asif Ghazanfar, assistant professor, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Princeton University and at the Neurosciences Institute there as well. Around, hi Asif. Hello. Around the room we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Um, Rama Ratnam. Hello. Nicole Witcher. Hi. Todd Troyer. And me, I'm Sama Karashi, your host. So Asif's body of work asks some really big uh, neuroethology questions about the relationship between the brain, the body, and context with an eye toward evolution. Some of his recent work looks at the origins of speech and language. Um, and that's kind of what I think we're going to be talking about today. I want to get, just give a sense of the things that I would, I kind of hope that we get to. But first, um, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about some of the conventional ideas about how language came about and now the, the newer embodiment-based thinking about language origins that, that you've been a proponent of. Um, second, I thought we could spend a little time on something that, that, that I think you've talked about. It's this Barlow's idea that neural systems are honed to process the statistical structure of sensory signals, um, since your work on audiovisual components of speech is rooted in that idea. Um, it's, I think it's also interesting to consider here that the most important sensory signals that we tend to process are themselves delimited by neural systems, and so it presents kind of a fun mental exercise there. Uh, finally, I thought we could touch upon um, some of your ideas on unimodality versus multi- or amodality of particle processing. Um, and, you know, this, this idea, your ideas, of which I hope we will get to definitely, of um, multiple nested oscillations and what they imply for input level processing of integrated signals rather than channel-wise processing. So to start with, let's talk about conventional ideas about language. And um, So I think, like, in my mind, like, if you read the popular press accounts, which is almost the sole source of accounts for people's ideas about uh, how language evolved, um, they tend to be theories that involve um, one important change in some feature of um, the human phenotype. So people will argue that, oh, there was some key genetic change, uh, like the FOXP2 gene, that kind of uh, unleashed our abilities to produce articulate speech and therefore um, language. Um, other theories include you know, changes in uh, the anatomy that we use to produce speech, and that some fundamental change in that anatomy uh, allowed us to, to develop language and our sophisticated communication abilities. And still other theories talk about, you know, uh, big changes in the brain or even simple changes in the brain or some change in how we cooperate with each other. And each one of those theories has taken, takes one of those... Um, kind of unitary ideas and, and builds us a really kind of elaborate, untestable, um, just-so story for how language evolved. Uh, and I think that's, other than make good stories, and, and I certainly enjoy um, reading and listening to them. In fact, I got interested in this topic through reading Stephen Pinker's Language Instinct, uh, so they're interesting, but I don't think they're very accurate. And I don't think they're accurate because language is really a, you know, a complex system that has many components, and they all kind of have to work together. And those components can span from the genetic to the neural to context, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think it's understanding how those kinds of elements uh, converge and therefore allow language to emerge that's uh, important and, and the tap that I'm attempting to take. But are those really that uh, those perspectives in conflict? Because you, you could be still looking for that one thing that you know the straw that broke the camel's back, the one thing that made that put you over the edge. But you need all the other stuff there also in place because otherwise it wouldn't happen, right? You can't just take any any critter and change one thing and then all of a sudden add a full new language. So you would need all those other pieces together, but it still may be one. A particular thing that really started things off, right? That they're going. So there may be, you could argue about some critical thing, some critical, which piece was critical. All the ones might be necessary, but one of them might have really started kind of this evolutionary cascade, especially when you have social behavior. Yeah, and I guess what I, I mean, my problem with, with, I mean, I don't really disagree with you, but I guess I wonder then, well, how do you decide what is that 
critical thing. And I think what people are doing is they they take the thing that they're studying and saying that's the critical thing without really taking into account Actually, they do other that. things. How come there's mostly just a popular press about this topic? Why isn't there a body of scholarly work uh, full of experiments? In? But there actually is a body of scholarly work, but they're too complicated for the popular press to interpret. So the, the bite, the, the media bites are come from people like Stephen Pinker and the, the people who are, are packaging and, and Ray Jackendorf who are packaging these it's models. different from anything else because you take the popular press on any topic you find that it's all sure. super simplified. So what is, what, is the, what is the experimental evidence one way or the other about the evolution of language? Well, I think one, one of the difficulties is maybe the answer to your question why there's only popular accounts is when you're talking about, some, when you're talking about evolution and you're talking about the evolution of language, what do you have to work with? Right? There's no fossil, fossil brains. Right? There's no fossilized brains. There's no recordings of Neanderthals. There's no... Um, the soft tissue makes up the vocal apparatus, so that doesn't fossilize either. So you're really only left with um, speculation um, or to do comparative studies. Look at the differences between humans and extant animals. Uh, and how they're similar and different, which is kind of what I'm trying to do, although even my approach is limited because I only study one other um, species. But I think really the comparative approach is the only way you can um, but that's kind get of a sophisticated... That's kind of, it's fairly fraught because relative to some other things that you might study, the comparative stuff that you have to deal with, it depends on what you, you think of... Uh, uh, non-human vocal communication <coughs> but the the there's not a ton uh of of species in terms of and the species are pretty different i think that the the range of behaviors is pretty uh is fairly discontinuous between non-human say primates and humans uh and you can argue but you can argue about that but i'm just saying relative to some other behaviors where you might have an entire Look at all the primates, and you have a really pretty graded range of some behavior, and you can really language do comparative is a, Language is a particularly good case of that, and that's why um, most of what, for example, your work and, and, and Rama's work, and I mean, the work in communication tends to gear itself towards speech when you're looking at speech processing, which has commonalities in other species. But when you're talking about language, we are the only species that produce language. Um, but we're also the only, as, as Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bates used to say, we're also the only species that plays tennis, and we're also the only species that plays piano and does a lot of other things. And so where are the genes for tennis playing, or you know, sure. the, the trigger sure. for, that developed our skills for those other things? And let, me, let me get back to the point you made about speech, because there seems to be this popular misconception in the public, certainly, uh, that speech is language, language is speech. Right? I mean, the people often seem to think of speech as being sort of right. the crucial sort of, you know, Part of language, but it is not. I mean, to the extent that language is a, a manifestation of broader abilities like you know, math, arts, music, and so on, uh, I, I think that the, saying that the larynx descended, you know, or that there was a single gene that gave a speech is an indicator or a crucial indicator of language ability, I think is 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 wrong in that sense. There is something else probably at play here that. Uh, that you know, did you learn to speak first and then we all language ability, or is, is it a consequence of language ability? I mean, these I think some some of the more trickier theoretical issues that I think I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I try to in at least in my work, I try to, although it may not have reflected itself in, in the talk. I really can only address things like the evolution of speech. I can't address the evolution of language simply because, for what you just said, humans are the only species that have a system of flexible rules for. Communicating things, although there is now some kind of somewhat meager but intriguing evidence that other primate species can actually combine their vocalizations to create new meaning. Um, this is a work by Klaus Zubabuler studying um, monkeys in the Thai forest in Africa. Um, so there may be there may be links, and there may not be such a huge gap that you're suggesting between extant, spe extant species and, and humans. But even if there is this huge gap, it may be that, and this is actually related to something you said earlier, it may be that this 
special convergence led to this kind of leap uh, in abilities. And, and I think that convergence has to be from multiple elements of um, production and perception that can't be related to one way of looking at it. Well, it's genetically so the, the work that was done on Kanzi, the chimp, um, by Suicide Drop on and, and, and it was stuff in Terence Deacon, I think, you know, the symbolic species. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, the, the, the focus, rather than focusing on language, that you focus on the ability to process symbols, or the symbolic reasoning ability, where you can carry out extended sort of, you know, uh, analyses of symbol, symbols in, in a certain space. Is, I mean, does that really require, I mean, where, where does speech tie into all this? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm still uncertain about the role of speech. I mean, I can certainly understand its importance in communication, but is it is vital to language? Is the question? Uh, well, I don't think it is vital to language because you can have you can certainly you can speech. have language without right. Yeah. So, what is the aspect of language that then manifests? I mean, that a lot. Why why study speech as a way of studying language? I mean, you see my point? I mean, are we trying to get at? Because when you're talking about the evolution of language, is the closest thing you can get to the evolution See, that of language. But that is why I feel that that, that is a, that is the misconception that I'm trying well, to find. Well, you can also there, there are also people looking at just the evolution of gesture and things like that that are also language related. Like gesture is not language, you know, um, sign language and gesture are two different things. But there are commonalities that may show evolutionary um, bases well, that, that may give you hints about the complex, more complex systems that we can't study directly. I think there's, I mean, your your work um, showing this the coupling between. So let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah. The let's. So one of the coolest aspects about your work is that you actually look at language from a rece- from an input and a from a transmitter and a receiver point of view, and you look at how sensory signals from the outside are actually correlated in a statistical way to the to the neural space. Mm-hmm. So let's let's let's. Can you just. Kind of give us a little overview and your. Um... So the so the suggestion that I'm trying to make, or the framework that I'm working within, is that the brain produces uh, a set of stereotypical rhythms, and one of those rhythms it occurs in the four to eight hertz frequency range, and this is an ongoing rhythm that's in the auditory cortex and other cortical areas. And and what my work is suggesting, the hypothesis that I'm putting forward, is that the structure of a signaler's output is his or her vocalizations and the facial dynamics that are associated with that, producing that vocalization, also occur with this 4 to 8 hertz rhythm. So it makes a nice kind of match between what's going on in the receiver's brain and what's being produced by the signaler. And I think that matching allows these um, oscillations to perhaps resonate with each other, uh, thereby amplifying the communication between the two individuals. And this rhythm is present in in monkey vocalizations and, and similar to what audiovisual human speech uh, so seems, It seems difficult to come up with a null... Uh, so it'd be nice to have something that's more optimized to the brain that it's being communicated with than, say, four to eight. Hearts, right? So it may be that there's lots of stuff that happens there, and you're just following that range, and you're not, you know, it's not like you had a whole range of things to try to, to speak, and then you like decided on the four to eight because that's the one that's that, that's good. So the question is, is that you know how broad would be our our flexibility in terms of suppose you wanted to say a lot of things fast, and you could only speak so fast. Like you couldn't speak faster than ten hearts. Well, then you're going to be in four to eight. So four to eight is a, is also a range that's. Is, I mean, is there any more subtlety to, that that sort of plays itself out within that four hertz window? I mean, is there? Um, I mean, certainly the signal. You know, we're just looking at kind of the the envelope of a speech signal and saying it has this kind of consistent rhythm. There's lots and lots of other temporal information embedded in the speech signal that may be used for other. Um, to communicate other aspects of uh, someone's intentions. Um, but this 4 to 8 hertz rhythm seems to be ubiquitous across languages, across contexts. And if you um, speed it up, kind of the experiment you're suggesting, you dramatically lose intelligibility. So what I, I think what I was uh, going to mention earlier was that I think that 
kind of is the fundamental answer to this question about what, how is speech and language, the way you're looking at it, related or evolutionary. Because um, language is, is a temporal, temporally dynamic, and it has to be sequence example in a temporal dynamic way, um, whether it's auditorily presented or not. Um, and asking questions about fundamental processes that are happening in the sampling ways, the, the, the um, co-activation of information in, in the receiver and sender. And, I mean, those are fundamental questions to getting that sampling rate for linguistic information to begin with. And so uh, it's it's sort of the basis for being able to understand language processing uh, as a start. I mean, it's, it's not the answer to, to where we've got syntax, but, you know, still it's, it's a very important start. Well, Todd studies this sort of sampling rate for communication with birds, right? I mean, is there... It's the same. It's the same rate. Exactly the same <laughs> Even though you got a thing. little, you know, you got a little kid's little bird and stuff. So, they are... But how is it even the same range? Because I... The syllables are 48 hertz. Or at least the notes, the subcomponents of the, the notes of the distinct spectrotemporal components... 40, 40 hertz. Uh, Did you go to the amyloid fluctuations? Yeah, I thought it wasn't. I thought, you know, because I looked up, you know, Fred Tunison's work, uh, and he doesn't, the way he analyzes his data doesn't specify a range. He only says it's less than 10 hertz. Less than 10 hertz. Well, yes. yeah, but I don't know that it, well, I don't know that he's done it in terms of uh, looking at the, uh, the envelope or whatever. Yeah. All the things I know, so if I look at syllables and, and, and break things into syllables, there's long syllables that are the ones that are over, uh, you know, that are over, say, 150 to 200 milliseconds. But any of the, this long syllable that's that longer, that would be a slower frequency, is actually broken up into a bunch of little components of things that tend to be uh, you know, 100, 120 to 200 milliseconds <coughs> long. Um, and they breathe in at that, that range and so forth. Um, so certainly in the same ballpark, I mean, they may be... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it depends on when you ask me that question. I'm not, I'm, you know, I can present this framework and have it still be accurate for a substrate for the evolution of speech, and it could still be common across right. different yeah. species. So I don't, I'm not... Well, that's what it seems like in terms of this particular question, looking at vocalizations, there are a huge range of primate vocalizations that you may be able to find species of New World and Old World uh, monkeys, for example, that are at different ends of that range. Okay, so I've actually done that experiment. So I've actually, so one thing you say, you know, bigger primate, bigger vocal apparatus, bigger brain, maybe that's something special, smaller primate, not. So I... I did this exact same analysis in the exact same way with a small New World monkey called the cottontop tamarin, uh, very tiny, like 500 grams. And I also did the same analysis with uh, chimpanzee vocalizations, and you get the exact same peak in 4 to 8 hertz. But so there's no range. So there's, there's, there's <laughs> it's so, it's so yeah. ubiquitous that I often say, oh, this is really, really important or really, really trivial, <laughs> or somehow my analysis has a bug in it. <laughs> no, 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 I, I agree with that. I, it, I think it was this, there's been this, you quoted Rosen, uh, uh, or let me quote Rosen here, about where, which particular aspect of speech sounds is information pertaining to perception carried in. Okay. Is it the fine structure, is the envelope variation? And it's been shown over and over again that it's the, it's the slow varying envelope of a speech sound that actually carries information relevant to speech. You can swap it out. I mean, Burton Delgado did this uh, with, where he swapped, swapped fine structure and envelope. But all, in almost every species, no, but it's in almost every species, it is the, look, the fine structure is a matter of a vocal apparatus. I mean, it's, not that, it's not that the fine structure is, is irrelevant. You have to have at least some number of channels. You know, the Shannon experiment, even the, the experiment that you're talking about from Delgado, I think it is, you still have to have some elements of the fine structure. It can be coarse, but certainly the slow temporal structure well, is speech, critical. I mean, you can substitute the fine structure with sine waves, right? I mean, people have shown that. Yeah, but still it's still some It's not white noise as well. No, it's not white noise. No, certainly not. But it is. it certainly seems to be important. The point that you're making that is between 4 and 8 hertz is, is an argument that is certainly well-founded. And you know, you, to understand speech, you do need the slow-varying envelope. But perception is not that much relevant, dependent on the fine structure. 
there are vocal qualities. Like if you want to identify a person's voice, then you use fine structure and, yeah. and so on. So those are certainly. Can I can I try as a non speech person get you to clarify a, a couple of things for me because I there's something seems wrong about that. So uh, I just must not be understanding. This envelope has to do with how long it takes to make a meaningful sound and how you space meaningful sounds apart. But it doesn't tell you the meaning of this sound. So like in Todd's situation, where I understand it pretty well, these syllables uh, have a sequence, and if the birds know the meaning of these syllables, then they could say this syllable means something different from that one. Each syllable takes about the same amount of time, and so it becomes part of this envelope. But the envelope is not conveying the meaning of the message. The message has to do with what actual sound you make. Yeah, it's like the envelope words. is, yeah, it opens the channels for the, yes, the yes. rest of the signal so you yes. can interpret it. So the way I was thinking about your, uh, your phase locking between sender and receiver kind of notion is like handshaking signals between communicating machines that have to set up a frame rate and a frame phase for the, that's a the perfect analogy. information that are coming. Yeah. But not actually determining the message. The message is, is living in that framework that's being established that yeah. way. So it's in the, 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 all the rest of the information that's actually sampled within that rate, where yes. the meaning is. Isn't this one of the isn't this one of the unsolved problems in, in linguistics as to you know when do you after hearing at what point of hearing the words you actually does the meaning become clear in your mind? I mean it's right. It's I mean there are so many different ideas about this. You know at what point when I'm speaking to you do you actually understand the things that I'm saying? And you're integrating never never. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. The way you I should keep quiet for the rest of me. <laughs> No, but seriously, I mean, if you, if you, what, at what, so you're integrating information, right? Okay, fine, you have a 4 to 8 hertz channel, okay, a certain, band, certain narrow band that you opened up, and information is going through that channel. So, but then you're now asking the question is, you're, now you're asking a question about the semantics of it. When does the meaning become apparent from that? I, I'm not sure that that, if we can answer those kinds of questions with these, with the techniques that we're using, can you? I'm not sure monkeys have anything like meaning. Well, so uh, a coo and a shriek mean different things. Yeah, they monkeys, right? They can tell the other monkey's attitude or something like that. Uh, but they don't mean something, and they don't uh, refer to yeah. events or objects in the right. The world. Okay, so and they, have, and they don't have the intention of doing so. But at least they convey some message, and they that convey the state be, of the signal uh, should be evident pretty early on, I would think. A shriek. You don't have to go all the way through it to know it's a shriek. So, but um, there is, I mean, there, these animals are not, not dumb. They are communicating. But, there's deception in the monkey world, and there's uh, information can, that's conveyed in other ways. So it may not be through the speech signals, but they, they're definitely conveying information um, that is abstract. I mean, maybe, maybe the tools haven't been used correctly, but it seems like you can lesion the hell out of a monkey cortex and you don't see any changes in, in vocal behavior, right? Or is that just in vocalization? So that's like, so, <laughs> so I always have to uh, respond to this. So it's true that this this issue comes up with uh, monkeys don't learn how to produce their vocalizations. And that's one aspect of vocal learning. The other aspect of uh, aspects of vocal learning is learning to recognize uh, a vocalization, which they do have to learn, and learning when to produce a vocalization, which is also something that they have to learn. And this this is the big contrast with uh, people who study songbirds, is that songbird uh, folks can definitely claim that birds can learn their vocalizations and therefore a better model for vocal production learning than uh, primates would be uh, in comparison to humans. Um, so what you're saying comes from that, that um, literature where people have lesion, you know, motor cortex or what they think is Broca's area of the monkeys, and it doesn't seem to have an effect on the monkey being able to produce a coup call. But those experiments, and that's probably generally true, but those experiments uh, weren't terribly sophisticated in the following way. When they did, they were just asking, or their assay was just, do the monkeys produce a coup 
or not? And the answer is yes. But they don't look at the how the acoustics of that coup may have changed if you lesion, you know, part of motor cortex. We know motor cortex is involved in chewing and, and producing tongue movements and stuff like that. So articulators are involved in producing vocalization. So if you lesion motor cortex, it's likely to affect those articulators. And affecting those articulators is certainly going to affect the acoustic structure. So it's not that they don't have an effect. It's very likely that the effect is just subtle and possibly important. Is there a difference in uh, learning in the absence of sound between species? Uh, so the monkey or primates and birds... If you have, isn't it in your taught, or if there's an absence of the of the signal, they still develop to a certain degree the same poems. Yeah, so they 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 develop some species typical vocalization. Now they need to hear. If they don't hear themselves, if they're deafened, then then it's really crappy. Then you can barely tell. I mean, you may be able to tell species specific, but it's really bad. But in the and the monkey, would you get vocalization without? Um, if they have no auditory experience, yeah, I think you get both. You still get it? Yeah, and they're pretty recognizable. Mm-hmm. So they are still pretty big, very low level, um, very, very basic. Yeah. The calls may be, the calls may not be that different in birds. I actually don't know. The unlearned, because there's unlearned vocalization that are calls, mm-hmm. and they may not be, and they don't depend on forebrain and other kinds of things, and they may not be there. It's just like, when they try to produce song, which is this long, complicated thing, then it's just, it's just a mess. Let me ask a question about your audio, just a slight diversion here on the audiovisual experiments that you're doing. What is the exact, what is, you, you, you are, I believe you've shown that there's enhancement of in the auditory cortex or cortical neuron responses mm-hmm. when there is visual, when there's a visual cue present along with the auditory response, right? But what is that, what, what, to what extent, I mean, what does that audio, what is that visual information giving? I mean, what is it providing to the animal over and above the auditory? Is it um, emotional? Is it you know, semantic? What? So because of the nature of my experiments, I can't address that question yet. So um, although the, the, the more accurate version of the story is that when you add congruent visual information with auditory information, you can see either enhancement or suppression. Both are forms of integration, and both are nonlinear. And so your question is, what is that, does that help at all? And some of the things that we see is that adding vision makes the neurons um, more selective. So you can have a neuron that responds to three different vocalizations, but only shows integration to one of those vocalizations and uh, its accompanying phase. So it makes things more selective, so therefore making the signal uh, more clear. Another, there's another recent result, it's not my work, it's work by Christoph Kaiser, uh, and he's shown this kind of paradoxical uh, effect when it comes to enhancement and suppression. And what he shows is that although we typically think that if you see an enhanced neural response, that's somehow going to relate to an enhanced perceptual response, what he shows is it's actually the suppressed neural response that convey more information. And they do so because the suppression actually reduces the variability of neurons, and therefore their capacity to carry information is just increased over the enhanced responses. So it's a little bit un- unclear, but the, the, the correct experiment to do is to actually have the monkeys perform some clear audiovisual task and then ask what is the relationship of that task to the neural responses. So is the, is the time lag there important? Because there's like that time asynchrony between the visual signal and the auditory signal. Mm-hmm. If you compress the two, do you still see those modulatory effects? Uh, so that's an interesting question, and, and it's it's a bit complicated. So there's an idea out there that I think is is a good one, and the idea is the following: you have these ongoing auditory cortical oscillations. And the idea, and this is from Charlie Schroeder, the idea is that when you have a visual signal, let's say it's a mouth movement of a face, what it does is it resets that oscillation. Okay? And that the integration you see, whether it's suppression or enhancement, depends on when that subsequent auditory signal 
occurs. And that subsequent auditory signal can fall on a peak of excitability or uh, a peak of low excitability. If it falls on a high excitability peak, it's going to get enhancement. If it falls on a low excitability peak, it's going to get suppression. So it's, there's not a straight forward, and since it's an oscillation, you can get something that's enhanced, that's longer in time, and something that's uh, suppressed, depending on where that low or high excitability peak is. Um, so that means no, the delay between auditory and visual information huh? might be partly uh, related to this the frequency that's. Uh, yeah, so that's why. So that was kind of what I was alluding to in, in Anastasia's question during the talk, which is for audiovisual speech, you can tolerate things up to two hundred and fifty milliseconds. But so it seems like then you could tolerate. Uh, you couldn't tolerate them, and then you could again at five hundred. Yeah, so that's the strong. That's the strong prediction of this hypothesis, and, and it hasn't been tested. So what about? But, but from a perceptual integration point of view, the visual signal is almost. It seems like it's. Really important. I mean, you think of the McGurk illusion. Is it called McGurk? McGurk. Yeah. McGurk. Yeah. yeah, and that one. I mean, it's completely the visual input that delimits what you hear, right? I mean, it totally depends on um, how reliable the signals are. So, what I mean is, like, if the vi if vision is the strongest signal in a particular context, then it's going to have a dominant effect over the other sensory systems. Audition, in this case. But if there's situations where uh, the auditory s signal is more reliable, then it can actually influence what you see. So the classic example, the now classic example is when it comes to temporal perception, the auditory system is better and it can actually influence your ability to see um, events. What is so that's one of those illusions that's amazingly <laughs> robust. It's, a, it's the one where you, the, it's a, it's a ga, and is it a ga? Well, and yeah, a that's the McGurk illusion. Ba, ba. That's yeah, the, so yeah, it's, that's, but that's you know, you can, you, you can close your eyes and oh, it becomes yeah. a ba, yeah. and it's, 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 it's the visualization is a person's mouth ba. making a ga sound. And, and then you hear the a input, third auditory sound. input, is it, is it a third? Third syllable. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because you can close your eyes and it totally goes back and forth, yeah, even though I know what I should. The visual you don't you don't actually you don't ever hear what you see. It's related to that. So the idea is that you have two syllables and and there's a third one in between um, in the in, in the structure of the formants and in the structure mm -hmm. of the mouth and shape of the mouth, and so you see the the middle ground influenced by the visual system. And um, related, I was going to ask you about that because there is a, a theory. Uh, out there, uh, or, or I'm not sure how established it is, um, uh, Michael Beauchamp uh, doing work with in, in humans, mm -hmm. uh, looking at this at the McGurk effect and this essential multiple modality integration, has an idea the STS is actually what's driving this integration across uh, systems, and uh, you have shown in in your work that the the cerebral is. is um, in this feedback loop with the auditory cortex, mm -hmm. and so I was wondering if if you were to disturb the, the the STS by itself, if the entire system of of coordinated loops that you have, the co coordinated uh, feedback loops that you have, would, would get disrupted. Yeah. So I uh, so I think it would get disrupted, but I don't think you would lose your ability to integrate senses. And, and the reason I say that is because somebody did an experiment, a, a lesion experiment a long, long time ago. Um, I'm forgetting his name. What he did is he tested that very question. So he trained monkeys to do some sort of cross-modal task. And then he lesioned on both hemisphere all the association areas. So he, he lesioned the posterior parietal cortex, he lesioned STS, lesioned frontal cortex. It had almost no effect on their ability to do these cross-modal associations. So it really must be a, a distributed thing without some, you know, so key I, node. I, I don't know how accurate, I mean, how, how reliable these data are. I, I uh, saw actually Michael Bouchard presented this very recently at a conference uh, using transcranial magnetic stimulation in, in humans and stimulating STS, and the McGurk effect goes away. Um, so the, you, you lose the visual... Uh, contribution uh, when stimulated by STS, and the assumption is that you're, you're losing the the, center, the multiple sense uh, integration. So you just hear. But isn't but isn't stimulating? Yes, you're not 
when you stimulate STS, you're not only affecting STS. It's like any stimulation study, you're affecting. Could be beyond that, right? It could be beyond that, but there's some some indication that could be use that multisensory integration at least in part stimulating STS and whatever surround it. But you don't lose the auditory information. So you 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 maintain you hear what you would hear with your eyes closed. No, that sounds that sounds like a very neat experiment. Yeah. So um and in the in the in the monkey because of this loop between STS and auditory cortex, I was wondering I mean I, I, the like you were saying the McGurk effect is extremely real Dependent on that the the two signals overlap. So mm-hmm. somebody asked if you could get a mismatch in the monkey pulse mm-hmm. between the vision and auditory. So I imagine it would be pretty hard to get a McGurk effect in a monkey. But I was wondering if you could do something like that by by messing with that loop. No, the problem with the McGurk effect in monkey, because of course I, I would desperately want to do this because it would be incredibly cool. The problem with the McGurk effect is the subject needs to report what they hear. Mm-hmm. So I can't get a monkey to tell me. But you could get here. categorical perception in, in that they would have to like, press a button if they heard one thing, and if you could get the, that blended sound and they responded to that blended That's sound. That's true. That's true. I, that would be kind of tricky <laughs> come be, up with that be, sound. be a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one question about the multimodal integration is that I think that where it is most helpful and useful is when one channel of information is degraded, the other steps in, otherwise redundant. So there's redundancy of information in multiple mm-hmm. channels. So, for example, one one experiment that could be suggested directly as an extension of your own work is you present audio-visual sound and you degrade the audio-audio sound, the, the audio component of it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you present in a cocktail party situation mm-hmm. or you just simply degrade it and then ask whether the visual information that is presented along with it allows you to sort of recover the yeah, so we're basically doing that exact experiment, not only to address this question, but to address, to address the larger question that you brought up, is how do you link behavioral effects with the neural effects? So the experiment that uh, we have a monkey trained to do is exactly exactly that. So they're supposed to detect coup vocalizations, and we uh, detect this in noise, habitat noise, and the coup vocalizations can be from different individuals, and they vary in how loud they are. And you ask the question, well, how well can they detect these coup vocalizations and how much does adding a vocalizing face uh, help that detection? And it turns out it helps significantly in that situation. So it seems like one of the, the, one of the problems of thinking about all of this, well, any of the synchrony stuff, is that you really have a language, you know, an analytical language barrier. So you say, well, it's mostly 48 hertz. You're already putting this into some non, I mean, some linear frequency-based kind of analysis. How do you detect that? You you bandpass filter and see how much power is in there. We've just gotten rid of all those stuff about phase shifting and of onsets and realignment in time and a time-based kind of point of view. And so this idea of phase shifting or using the the visual signal to reset Mm -hmm. some discrete frame. Or, or do you have some continuous oscillation, ongoing resonance kind of behavior? Uh, so tell me, explain, explain what the thing is that's resonating or not resonating. The, the vocal signal and the, and the neural activity. So we have two signals, both of which have some periodic components. And now we're asking how to analyze them. And the way he sort of analyzed them was asked, do these two signals have a peak in the same frequency range? Right? And you're saying, is that peak phase locked, or is it, or is it just an amplitude modulation in, in, in that? No, no. Well, suppose it's not saying? actually just an, an oscillation, or not. Suppose you have a square wave that you're trying to get the, you're trying to line up the onsets of that sharp onset, and you want to move it around. Well, it's yes. all going to be in some sloppy 48 hertz synchrony kind of thing. But if you're on or you're off with some onset. Then so these are phase issues. Yeah, they would be phase issues. That's what I'm saying. It's really hard to distinguish some kind of timing oscillation <coughs> issues from phase resetting temporal issues, and both are important if you want to think about segmenting the the signal and and synchronizing with a signal to 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 perceive it. Right, you you want to segment the, sig- the uh, some auditory signal in the right kind of way. Um, and you also want to get the rhythmic, the frame, the, the taking the information at the same speed. And I, I mean, I don't know how many solutions to this, but it seems very difficult to tease apart some of these 
theories about, especially if you look at the cross-modal stuff, is it just resetting, or is it amplifying your resonance with, uh, with auditory signal? Uh, so why can't it be both? Well, it can be both, but can you tell the difference apart? That's what, I, that's what I'm asking. Can you really kind of pick apart those different ways of thinking about what the importance is for perception? No, no, sure. So to be honest, I haven't, I haven't thought about it in the way you just presented it. I haven't thought about that, that problem. And frankly, I'm not sure I understand the problem. <laughs> uh, but couldn't you test it in the following way? Like you could have some, you could have, for example, I want to test the influence of a dynamic face and I want to know whether it's just the onset or the ongoing dynamics have an influence. Why can't I just show, flash on a static picture of the face, see what the effects of that are on the auditory cortex signal, for instance, and compare that to the full dynamic video of the face with its intrinsic rhythm? I think you can just not the frequency line. Because, well, because, uh, because the frequency domain is going to completely remove all the phase effects of your stimulus. And so you have to go back to the time domain to see case. Or, or, or we have to, or if you in the time domain onset, because it might be not just sharp versus none. In right? mm-hmm. some another in the frequency domain, thinking about onsets is uh, phase synchrony, transient phase synchrony across frequency. Okay. Right. I mean that's what that's the way you'd see you'd see a, a phase alignment across frequencies. So things like uh, you know, it may may be helpful to have some of the gamma oscillation of gamma reset, uh, mm. something that's faster, that's onset with some you know big event that's at the some theta frequency. Or, you know, you have to look at a finer scale of of locking, uh, and even locking at the theta. If you have the vocal signal, it's four to eight hertz, but maybe it's four followed by you know it's two hundred fifty followed by one hundred twenty-five. You follow each one and. Or do you kind of just smear everything out? Yeah, I see what you're saying. You yeah. know, that, whether you're actually locking to the details at, at, in time or you're just kind of getting things going so you're kind of expecting things at the right time, they're kind of different in terms of what's happening. It's very hard. I just kind of, the, the tools to, anal- to analyze that are really tricky and messy. Why? What's wrong, what's wrong with just uh, measuring the phase the average phase at some frequency. Because so you, miss across, you, miss on, you miss onsets, which is a phase synchrony across frequencies that's transient. Right? So in some ways, if you think on, when you say an onset, kind of, you think of this as an event, it's all, and then you're kind of implicitly taking some nonlinear way of thinking about the signal, onsets and onsets. Uh, well, why? There's nothing intrinsically nonlinear about onsets and onsets. Is it? Well... Yeah, because there are there are particular uh, events that are there and then go away. And your analyst in the frequency domain, they become really complicated events, right? Because they become particular phase realignments at a whole bunch of different frequencies that only happen for a very short amount of time. That's frequency dependent. So, I'm just trying to clarify in my mind what you're saying. So I'm imagining you're thinking that there are a bunch of oscillatory sources, and that. Uh, and that they come into phase with each other and you see a bigger signal, or they or they start to just be stronger sources and they make a bigger signal, those two bigger signals are indistinguishable from each other. Well, that's one... So if you think of them as a bunch of oscillatory sources, that's kind of a frequency domain way of reconstructing an onset. <coughs> they come together and they do something. Or maybe you just have some... You, hit, you bang the system, it goes off with some waveform, uh, and it starts off, and, it, and it, it does something different. If you hit it with onset, it resets everything. Um, so, I'm nothing... sure, so I'm not sure if this addresses it, but I, I kind of think, and there's evidence for it, is that basically, like, auditory cords, it, it has an ongoing rhythm. There's an ongoing thing that can be in, in silence. And then when you add, a, you add a sensory signal, that signal can reset it as well as kind of resonate with it. Right. Uh, is that at odds with what you're... No, no, the question... The, what I'm There's asking... the two different things. That, that's... that's my, my question is, is can you tell apart or think about 
how much does it reset it and how much does it resonate with it. Oh, okay. I think I see what you're saying. <laughs> and they're kind of different ways of thinking about it. I mean, any you can capture either one in either kind of in the time domain or the frequency domain or something. But kind of when you think about things... How can you have any resonance if there isn't a first a reset? Well, it's just a reset is kind of a, a makes it a, a short time. So it makes a, a, a reset in terms of well, it's changing the phase over a couple cycles. Is that a, yeah, that's a resetting, but maybe you speed up. Maybe that's a, a frequency uh, uh, locking, right? Is that is frequency locking, is that a reset, or is that just resonance would usually cause the amplitude of the oscillation to get bigger. Right. Whereas reset is just going to cause the phase to shift. And so if you just had one oscillator, it's very clear that there's a big difference between resonating with that thing and resetting it. If you have a whole population of oscillators, then some of the differences can become blurry, and you can, if you have a whole lot of oscillators out of phase, and then you reset them, suddenly you would see a big increase in amplitude of the oscillation. So, in the experiment that I mentioned by uh, Charlie Schroeder, who put, put forth this phase resetting hypothesis, what he's shown is that the, mod the extra modality, if you're recording an auditory cortex and you apply a tactile signal, it resets the auditory oscillation without at all changing its amplitude. But so is the tactile thing that short... Uh, it's just a punk tape. So that's something that has to be seen in the time domain because it, uh, because it should be that the spectrum before and after that would be identical. Because resetting the oscillator is just going to shift its phase. With no yes, and that, that's what it shows. Basically. So I was just wondering if... If you think your what you found in the auditory system can be applied to other modalities and other systems right. in the body, um, if you think this is a general phenomenon that you have this the sort of environmental uh, element to to the synchrony of the, of the of what's going on in the signal between the brain and the receiver and the sender, if you can see that in, in uh, sensory tactile or other, other anything any other systems in the body. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I think that fundamentally that's how any behavior emerges. It's always an interaction between the environment, the body, and the brain. And there's, you cannot understand any behavior without taking into account those three factors. I, I do want to touch on the, the, the PNAS paper because it's gotten a lot of press. This idea of the, the uncanny valley effect and how it's not unique to humans. Could it be an, an, an example of a disruption of that contextual synchrony that we expect in our environment. I mean, do, can you think of it along the same lines? Is that how you, I mean, I wasn't sure if that's what you were um, sort of getting to. A, a little bit. So, so we recently showed that monkeys have the uncanny valley effect, and so that requires Go ahead. why, 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 we, cool. why we did that. So all, a lot of the questions that came up require that somehow we manipulate uh, the signal. And since I'm using naturalistic signals, we need to have some sophisticated way of manipulating those signals, like, you know, whether it's this, the dynamics of the phase or... So what we had to do in the lab, what we decided to do in the lab, if we want to test all these phase resetting ideas, and et cetera, et cetera, we need a, a face that we can manipulate. So we decided, okay, well, why don't we just make a synthetic monkey face? There's people uh, all over the world making synthetic human faces to interact in various commercial applications and for um, helping kids with uh, language disabilities, et cetera. So why don't we make a synthetic monkey face. And we made one, and the first question that you ask as soon as you look at this, you're, the first question is, well, are the monkeys going to look at this as another monkey? And that's what leads to the, the uncanny valley. How do you know if what you've generated, the face that you've generated, is real enough to elicit the expectations from the, the individual that's viewing it? And so the uncanny valley is, is kind of a test of that. And it dates back to this uh, a roboticist, a complete hypothesis from this roboticist named Mori uh, from the 70s, who basically said, well, you know what ro roboticists need to do? They need to stop making uh, robots that look really human-like because it just creeps people out. <laughs> okay, so what he said, he made this hypothetical curve where um, as you make robots more and more human-like, people have an increasing preference up until the point where they look too human and then the preference drops dramatically and then rises again for an actual real human. And the, the reason for the drop 
uh, he argued, is that now you've made something so real that the expectations that that face should perform exactly like a real face cannot be met. And therefore, they find it disturbing. It looks like a corpse or whatever. So we wanted to test whether that same phenomenon occurred in monkeys. Our primary reason for making the aesthetic monkey faces was, as I suggested, we want to use it in experiments. But it, the issue um, came up, and it was interesting because many people explain the uncanny valley effect in humans by invoking evolutionary psychology arguments that, oh, well, uncanny faces elicit our evolved module for disgust or violates our module for facial attractiveness. And really, if any of those evolutionary ideas are true, then the only way to test them, like language or speech, is to do a comparative study. So that's what we did with our monkeys, where we showed them real faces, realistic avatars, or or really unrealistic faces, like a, a monkey face that looks like the Terminator, basically. And what we find just by measuring very simple looking time is that they'll look for a really long time at real faces, they'll look for a really long time at like the Terminator, really artificial faces, and they look at those significantly longer than the realistic uh, monkey avatar faces, suggesting that monkeys have uh, an uncanny bad like humans and and make tenable those hypotheses invoking evolutionary ideas. Now, do I believe that there's an involved module for um, attractiveness or, or disgust? Not really. What I think basically is what, what's going on is um, you build expectations, you experience certain types of faces in the world and you have an expectation for what a face, a monkey face, if you're a monkey or a human face, if you're human, you, you have an expectation of what those faces look like. You build that through sensory experience. And if you see something that violates those norms, you will get the uncanny valley effect. So I think it's actually a very simple explanation. It's probably not specific to faces. You could probably get the same thing um, with voices or any other thing um, that you're very familiar with. That was very long. Really no, that was great. I, I thought it would have sparked some cool discussion, but I think we've maxed out. Oh, I thought that was a nice way to end with yeah. you saying something instead yeah. of us. <laughs> Thanks, that's it. This is lots of fun. This has been Thank your you. scientist talk shop. Cool. So, what's the rate? Do you know what I was going to just. Oh, no, we're going to do this. This is not over yeah, yet. Is there, <laughs> is, there, is there any difference between uh, um, uh, sign language? I was going to ask you that. Is that the temporal structure of hand movement? Can you even do that? I don't know, but so Harrison Bazaar was at this audiovisual speech meeting and someone was there actually. His first name is Kita. I don't know what his. I don't even know if that's his first name or his last name. But he studies gesture. And he was looking at my presentation. He just happened to measure the dynamics of, of hand gestures, not sign language, just gestures that people use in everyday communication. And it turns out that there's a certain temporal aspect of gestures that totally falls within. Forty years, right? That's just like so I said, crazy. Like, what's special about forty years?